0: Hello and welcome to Overinvested, a podcast about pop culture obsessions. I'm Gavia Baker-Whitelaw and here is my co-host, Morgan Davies. Hello. So this week we watched Batman, Mask of the Phantasm, the 1993 spin-off movie from Batman the Animated Series. Starring longtime voice actors Kevin Conroy and Mark Hamill as Batman and the Joker, it's a romantic noir adventure mystery where Bruce Wayne reunites with an old flame while tangling with a mysterious vigilante known as the Masked Phantasm.
1: So this was a listener request from friend of the podcast, Madison, who sent us a very amusing message that, as I recall, was sort of like, yes, I'm going to make Morgan watch this movie, anticipating that Gavia would already have seen it, naturally. But I thought it was great. I had a great time watching this film this morning. Obviously, I had not seen it before, nor am I familiar with Batman the Animated Series because this was not part of my childhood. But um, I thought it was fantastic and was just like absolutely rich with allusions to old Hollywood movies, which is my bag. So I had a great time and I think we're going to have a lot to talk about. But, Gav, you are an expert in the source material here. (laughs) So we're going to begin with that because you know so much about this that I do not. So why don't you lead us off with some context for the TV shows from whence this came?
0: Yeah. So if you like the movie, then you will love the TV show because the TV show actually, if anything, is better because um, they had some construction issues with the creation of this movie. But um, basically, uh, the first like kind of adult Batman movie was in 1989, the really wonderful Michael Keaton Batman directed by Tim Burton. And that sort of... Kickstarted the interest in making a new Batman TV series, an animated show. So that was launched in 1992, and it was co-created by Bruce Timm, Paul Dini, and Mitch Bryan. If you're into Batman cartoons, you probably recognize a couple of those names because, like, they basically kept working in this forever afterwards because this show was so successful. But they kind of stumbled on it by accident because this was a period when. Obviously, Batman has always been a very lucrative property, but there wasn't a huge amount of sort of studio control saying this is precisely what we want, which is very much what it's like for all of the big superheroes now. So these guys kind of put together a fairly lackadaisical pitch for what they'd be interested in doing, which is sort of stripped down noir influenced darker Batman but suitable for kids because obviously this wasn't the point where they were doing fully edgy adult superhero shows yet and they just like their pitch was so good they were like just like sure make like 60 episodes of this show so they had a lot of creative freedom but kind of the interesting thing about this show is that while it's really it's really great like it's really interesting aesthetically because they combine all these noir influences with this wonderful sort of stylized art deco aesthetic it's also definitely a show for kids which means that they have to follow all of these standards and practices rules for like tv shows in the 90s so like you're not allowed to kill anyone on screen you're not allowed to like shoot anyone you're not allowed to say that anyone's died if someone gets pushed off a building they have to say ouch when they hit the ground sort of thing so there's all these like rules um which is just just turns into quite a charming show but um this series has a tremendous fan base to this day and is kind of seen as very influential Um, One thing I should also mention is the soundtrack is fantastic. The music was composed uh, by Shirley Walker and unusually for this kind of animated show, she like properly did an orchestral score for every episode. So that really kind of makes it feel more cinematic than other cartoons. But it just felt like a big kind of step up from this period where you had loads of cartoons like G.I. Joe and He-Man, which are very simple and quite narratively childlike and also just full of like loads of really fast moving nonsense because a lot of it's about selling toys and this batman series is like visually a lot darker it has more thematically complex stories but you can still watch it as like an 8 year old oh and it introduced mark hamill as the joker crucially it created harley quinn an amazing character and mark hamill who is simply a wonderful joker
1: yes i did know he played that character and you would never know that was him
0: it is his second his second iconic role
1: <laughs> yeah so then this film is this sort of standalone film, but had some production drama. Do you want to get into that a bit also? Because I think you also know more about that <laughs> yeah. than I do. I was just looking on Wikipedia, but um, basically the, you know, shortcut version is that it was released into theaters, but that was not the original intention when it was being made. So there was yeah. some problems with that
0: I mean we perceive the straight to video market like straight to DVD as sort of that's b-movies and they're not very good but especially for animated films and especially during this period like that was how you released this type of film like it wasn't designed to be a feature film that would release in cinemas but because the show was such a hit and there was such an interest in Batman Warner Brothers was like okay we're gonna release this in cinemas and by this point like all of the people who were working on the movie they were like on a tour in japan or something and like they were halfway through post-production and they were like you can't do this this is clearly meant for a small screen and they had to you know change the aspect ratio of the whole film and suddenly all these warner brothers executives started getting interested and being like oh you need to reorder the story so the flashbacks all happen at the beginning of the film because audiences don't understand what flashbacks are you know typical stupid studio notes so the film kind of got messed around a lot and didn't kind of come out in its most satisfying form when it aired in cinemas. It didn't make very much money, unsurprisingly, because it's like a 77 minute long cartoon. But like kind of in more recent years, it's just got this cult following because people recognize that, you know, it's a really good film. And the TV show also is just like so well regarded by critics. um, But it was not designed to be released in cinemas alongside like another Tim Burton film.
1: Yeah, I thought that the end product from an artistic standpoint you know, I didn't know about this drama with the release situation until after I'd watched it and then I looked at the Wikipedia page. But I think it pretty much works as a movie in terms of, like, the structure of the film. The only thing that is a bit odd is that the Joker shows up, like, two-thirds or three-quarters of the way through with no foreshadowing
0: I think Warner Brothers was like, you have to have the Joker in this movie. <laughs> yeah.
1: And... Obviously, we all know the Joker, right? And so, it, like, it doesn't matter. You're just like, oh, the Joker's here. But if this had been intended as a feature from the beginning, I, like, y- you need that character to show up earlier, from a storytelling perspective, like it's just weird that he's not in there from the beginning and that makes it feel more like part of a longer serialized project, right? That like you had this character who just kind of shows up and then it's like, ah, oh, yes, I'm also the bad guy. And like, we all know who he is, so it's okay, but it doesn't completely make sense in the internal logic of what's happening. But other than that, I think it stands alone pretty well. Like obviously it, it assumes that you have some knowledge of Batman, but, like, every human on the planet who has, like, seen a movie in the past 20 years has a working knowledge of Batman, so it's fine. And I think the movie actually does a pretty elegant job of not over-explaining certain really familiar Batman things to you. Like, they do not show, for instance, the scene of them in the alleyway with the Waynes getting shot, which... I did not need to see again because we've all seen it a gazillion times at this point. Can you
0: imagine if they have it again in the one in the new one? I will laugh. I
1: I have to assume it's gonna happen. But they also in the flashbacks kind of show how Bruce becomes the Batman without laying it on too thick, so that if you're watching this without a huge amount of information or just like to watch it as a satisfying experience of itself, like emotionally, it feels really coherent as a sort of complete thing. And I think the flashbacks are integrated pretty well. It's interesting to hear that the executives were messing around with the placement of them within the story because I felt like
0: that was done well. I think the original writers in got a their way in the way. end because they made them do a new yeah. cut where they just put all of the flashbacks at the beginning and, like, <laughs> just
1: <laughs> no. And the aspect ratio thing is also really interesting because it looks amazing. It looks so good. I think one of the things that is the strongest about the movie and that was the most interesting to me was the visual look of the film. And as you were saying, it definitely draws on those Burton Batman movies. And they're both drawing on German expressionist films from the 1920s. In addition to the Hollywood noir films from the 1940s, I was thinking a lot watching this about what was happening with film preservation in the 80s in America. Obviously, also in Europe, but it was sort of all connected through Hollywood, which was that people like Scorsese and the other kind of like film brat generation directors, so people like Lucas definitely, and I think Spielberg too. We're all really interested in the history of film and were really largely responsible for the movement to preserve film and make old movies accessible to people. So, obviously, those older movies hadn't like completely vanished from the cultural consciousness (laughs) for the you know intervening decades. I mean, some of them really had, like Metropolis was just pretty much gone. I think the original cut definitely had was gone but it was like if something happened to be playing on tv you could see it or if it was re-released you could see it or if you were someone like steven spielberg who had access to all of the prints at the warner brothers archive you could watch them but you know you couldn't just rent a movie from the movie store or have the dvd or watch something streaming online and these kids who had grown up in the era of old hollywood like that was happening when they were little kids, they revered those movies and had a kind of academic attitude about it. And when they became the big shot directors in Hollywood, they really made film preservation a thing. Obviously, Scorsese is the most important figure in that conversation in America, but he was not the only person in Hollywood who wanted that to happen. And so what happened in the 80s and then the early 90s, I think it sort of extends to that period, is that, It's just like a boom of these older movies becoming accessible to people. And I think you can see in the films that are made at that time, all of this new influence of older movies because everyone can watch them. And we talked about Who Framed Roger Rabbit a few months ago. And I was thinking about that movie a lot watching this one too. They're both directly addressing these movies from an earlier generation, but in this kind of cheeky, fun animated way right and this film is so directly referencing all of these older movies in a way that is both taking like it's taking itself really seriously as a piece of art but also it's a children's movie right? like it's not it's not overly sober about it And I think that's part of what's really exciting about that era of film is that everyone was just like, oh, my God, all these old movies were so great. Like, let's try to do it ourselves down to, like, an animated show about Batman on television.
0: Like, what? That doesn't happen now at all. I mean, regrettably, currently everyone's fucking cannibalizing the 80s in, like, the most shallow possible way. (laughs) Because it's like everything right now is the 80s, but it's always like, what if we had like a less edgy version of the Goonies? And it's like, I hate to say it, but a lot of 80s pop culture was about like being afraid of AIDS or hating capitalism, which strangely enough. But yeah, I mean, one of the things that I really love about this movie and the animated series is the way it kind of portrays Gotham, because obviously It has to be absolutely kid friendly, but it's also like one of the best portrayals, I think, in terms of screen adaptations. I really like Tim Burton's as well, which is extremely fantastical and more kind of gothic. It's I mean, it's it's Tim Burton, so it looks like a Tim Burton location and it's got loads of kind of very theatrical sets. And then once you get to the kind of late 90s, Gotham is just this like absurd, it's all neon, it's ridiculous. It looks like an MTV film set. And Christopher Nolan definitely has the worst. Gotham because he's only interested in like making a protagonist driven like action movie so his version of Gotham basically just seems like a normal city and I really like what the animated series does which is it's not really set in any particular time period so it kind of feels very 40s it's very kind of noir um and kind of the shapes of everything are very stylized in this way that kind of looks a lot like architectural drawings and cartoons from the 30s and 40s. But there's also kind of elements of it that feel like the 90s and the technology is all over the place because they sometimes just have like some bat technology thrown in there. And it's just this lovely sort of suspension of disbelief that is much harder or maybe like impossible to do with a live action movie.
1: Yes. I found all of the production design really interesting and appealing. I think all... I haven't seen the Schumacher... Batman movies because that has not been high on my priority list. They're very list fun. Of They're very ridiculous. <laughs> um, but I think the Nolan movies. I mean, it's such a reaction against. Oh, for sure. That right, in a way that I think was kind of inevitable. Like there's nowhere else to go, and obviously that that's kind of Nolan's aesthetic, right? But it makes sense that Warner Brothers would choose someone who was going to do that kind of movie because like they had maxed out on the alternative which was just like this is this is too much. But this is obviously a decade and a half ish earlier and I think it strikes a really good balance between the really zany expressionist stuff that Burton is doing which I also love obviously but it's a very specific thing because he is a very specific director and then the things that go kind of too far in one way or the other in the movies that come after and I agree about this sort of like slightly odd placelessness in this in a way that's like interesting. So Wayne Manor is like on the sea. (laughs) (laughs) It like looks like a Mediterranean like outcropping and I never really have a strong sense of like the geography of the city watching this movie, but I didn't care at all because all of the different locations were so vivid and I think that's part of the fantasy of it. And they do a lot with, again, sort of like 40s iconography, including um, there's a rundown World's Fair set, which you see in a flashback when it was up and running that Bruce and the love interest go I mean, at any given
0: moment, Gotham City is about, I would say, at least 25% rundown fairgrounds of some kind. It's like their main industry, which is always in a state of collapse. (laughs)
1: <laughs> but but the World's Fair thing is directly oh, referencing the actual yeah. World's it's Fair, It's very, right? very retro.
0: And then there are elements
1: about it when it's run down, well, before and after it's run down, that seem to be directly referencing Metropolis. Like there are these sort of android type creatures that are quite eerie that reminded me a lot of Metropolis. So the combination, again, of this, of both the Hollywood and the German movie references was really interesting. And There's so much of this sort of 20th century promise that has been sort of abandoned or that has failed, which is really interesting coming in the 90s.
0: It's also, I, I really think, I mean, Batman is like especially suited to this type of film because he's really suited to being stylized. Even just like visually his silhouette works really well in this sort of fantastical theatrical context. But I think Batman and Superman, like they both fit so much better to a mid 20th century story than a lot of the Marvel heroes like as soon as you start updating both of those characters they make less and less sense and they are often a lot less likable especially like Superman it's all to do with like print journalism and living on a small farm and stuff like as soon as you try and like translate that directly it stops working and with Batman this kind of tycoon persona that he has becomes much less interesting on a personal level in like a 21st century story and also much, much less likeable because it's like it's like they're all fucking Jeff Bezos. Like you can't suspend your disbelief and be like, oh, he's probably fine. Whereas if it's this sort of figure who's existing in some sort of unspecified 1948 situation, it's just, it's got that distance and it kind of feels less gross.
1: I, I was thinking too, watching this, I mean, is basically just what you're saying like these characters are such valuable ip for these companies that they feel compelled to make movies about them every three years right like so there's doing them over and over and over again and people go see them and they make a bunch of money and so that's the hollywood that we have now but it really came home to me watching this movie the degree to which this is a 20th century creation and a reflection of 20th century neuroses right and We're now far enough away from that that, you know, we were both born in the 20th century, and even though we've spent more time alive in the 21st century, I feel like a lot of the things that influenced my brain and the way I think about the world and the stuff that I'm interested in historically is all the 20th century and 20th century culture. But it now feels like its own distinct thing to me because we've gotten far enough away. And- The character just makes so much more sense if you think about it in that context, right? As opposed to continuously trying to make new movies where he's just like, ah, yes, Batman again. It's like, well, what if this just doesn't have anything to say about our current moment? Because actually he was made up you know, a hundred years ago. It's not that long, but you I mean, it's, point, right? it's
0: almost that fucking long. It was like 1939. But also, I feel like this yeah. also kind of illustrates what a great handle the creators of this show and movie had on the character, because when they did like a follow-up TV series, which was only like a few years later, it was in the late 90s, but when they did a follow-up TV series to Batman the Animated Series, they did a sequel, but instead of being like, oh, we need to do this modern show, Um, it's called Batman Beyond. And the concept is that it's like Batman is very elderly. Bruce Wayne is very elderly. It's set in the quote unquote future. So it's like a futuristic kind of urban cyberpunk series. But the concept is that like Bruce Wayne is like a fucking old guy. So you can have a different protagonist, but it no longer feels like the kind of corny Batman and Robin persona, which is just like such a smart way of doing that idea.
1: Yes. I mean, obviously superhero and like comic book characters just regenerate and regenerate and regenerate. Forever, right? But like the passage of time is actually important to storytelling. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know. But you know, there just seems to be a lot of again, the feel of like twentieth century failure in this. The police stuff in this movie was really interesting to me in the context of what year is this? Is this ninety? It was it was ninety came out in nineteen ninety three. Yeah. So this is a period of time where we're past the peak of the drug war, I guess, but it's still definitely going on. They're going to pass the crime bill. I think I think the crime bill is 94. Um, don't quote me on that, but it's around this period, right? So there's definitely like, this is a high police era in America. And Batman is obviously a character who works with the police. That's That's how his character functions. Like, that's how the storytelling works, is that he collaborates with the police to, like, then bring these baddies to justice as a vigilante. And what the plot of this movie, which we have not said so far, is that there's this sort of, like, new figure in Gotham, as there always is, who is killing mobsters. And he kind of looks like... Batman.
0: Yeah, he's like a cross between like Batman and the Grim Reaper. Very very explicitly.
1: (laughs) Deliberately designed to look like the ghost of Christmas Future from a Christmas Carol, which is explicitly referenced in the movie. But like big, you know, black cloak, etc. And so everyone thinks it's Batman who's killing these people. And so then the cops are trying to get Batman. And they're just bad in the movie. Like, they're not presented sympathetically. And there's one particularly long scene where they've got him kind of cornered in a... I don't even... It's like an abandoned building or something. I don't even remember. But it's like the full-on, like, militarized police situation. Like, way too many cops have showed up to try to get this guy. They're firing tear gas into the building. They're doing all of the stuff that, you know, we're all familiar with. And the guy in charge is drawn as, he almost looks like a sort of lower level, like Italian mafioso. Like that's what his, he looks like in terms of like the stereotypical sort of animated characters. Like, but he's a cop. And I just thought that was such an interesting element to the storytelling, given when this movie came out.
0: That And the, all the people working on it were like from Los Angeles, which was like, The absolute, like, there was, like, literally, like, sections of the LAPD which were operating as gangs. (laughs) Just, like, just other gangs.
1: Yeah, I mean, early, the early 90s for the LAPD was uh, not Just, just
0: Google the Rampart program at some point and be horrified. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the police thing is, I hadn't really, I didn't really remember that element of this movie, but, like, recently I did... I did like a YouTube video that was kind of going through the different uh, live action Batsuit designs and kind of talking about how it's evolved with like different periods of cinema and with like the Christopher Nolan movies, it's really interesting to see like the way the police department like is portrayed differently during the Christopher Nolan movies compared to the earlier ones. Because like obviously always Gotham City is corrupt and there's always like elements of the police department that are corrupt and then you've got kind of different portrayals of Commissioner Gordon and in like the animated series Commissioner Gordon is this sort of very paternal like serious figure and then in some of the other adaptations he's quite goofy it's really interesting to see like in this compared to Christopher Nolan era which is like fully post 9-11 absurd level of like just there's like one of those movies the one that the third movie has just like all these fucking like parades of uniformed police officers like strutting around and everyone is like so overarmed and it really feels indicative of like kind of the shift in hollywood towards like much more sort of pro military like patriotic period where it's just like accepted that everyone's gonna have a giant bazooka and that's fine
1: yes i mean yeah the the 2000s for that stuff Obviously, that movie is 2012, but feels yeah, folded It's part in of Yeah, it's
0: part of the trilogy that began in, like, 2006.
1: <laughs> yeah, was was not good. But I wouldn't have expected the 90s to do a great job on that either. No. I'm not really an expert. I mean, I've certainly seen a bunch of movies from the 90s, but that's not, like, one of my hugest areas of expertise. But I, I was really struck by it. Obviously, this is subject matter that is on everybody's mind at the moment. But, um... I just thought it was really interesting. And then obviously in terms of like the actual storytelling of this movie, it means that Batman is totally isolated. So the sense of like failure and hopelessness is acute throughout the movie. And I think that they do a really good job of showing him as someone who is just like a complete lunatic. (laughs) Like like he's quite likable. And sympathetic, and I think Kevin Conroy does a really great job with the voice. But like, he's definitely a, just a nutcase Like,
0: <laughs> he's very histrionic in this one because like the TV show is interesting because like they have so many different episodes. They can show a lot of different sides to him, and like he's definitely like this in the TV show. But there's also quite a lot of episodes where you see him be really nurturing, which is something that's really absent from the live action movies. So you've got loads of episodes where he's he, he's sort of trying to usher Harley Quinn out of an abusive relationship or like there's one where it's just about some like minor C-list villain who's put in sort of like a halfway house after getting out of prison and Batman's like trying to help him like get a therapy and find a steady job (laughs) but also while dressed as a bat you know
1: naturally yeah well there is a lot of great little interactions with Alfred who is really excellent in this film who's sort of acting as the audience surrogate, being like, um, sure. Like, <laughs> all of this behavior seems totally normal to me, right? Where Whereas Bruce is just, like, incredibly intense all the time, and everything is just, you know, so extreme. And when the, the woman who's the love interest, whose name is Andrea, they have a meet-cute, and she shows up at his house a few days later, and he's literally, like, doing jujitsu... <laughs> In the yard, <laughs> like really intensely, also really
0: forties because- as well. It's sort of like the way he, the way yes. Batman does workouts is so much better when he's doing one of those weird sort of like Cary Grant, like doing gymnastics aerobics in his garden, as opposed to when it's like Ben Affleck dragging a car tire around his basement.
1: <laughs> yeah, he's just like really forcefully like kicking the air, and she's like, right, <laughs> like, okay. And she's like, I thought you were going to call me. And he's like, I never said that. And he's like, I'm practicing. <laughs> and she's like, okay. And, you know, the movie obviously sets up that this is like a vow he made to his dead parents. Obviously, this is all in his head. But the sense of him having this like, unbelievable obligation that he feels he has to, you know, do all this stuff in order to live up to whatever that is also completely, completely dysfunctional, I think is expressed really, really effectively in the movie. He's not doing great. He, he doesn't. It doesn't seem good.
0: And also Alfred is really mu- very much just like, this is all a bad idea, but I guess I'm stuck with it now. <laughs> yes.
1: <laughs> it's like trying to give him good advice, but knows that it's not going to take. And I think the reason it works is that there's just a Like, the movie has a sense of humor, as I was just describing, about the sort of absurdity of all this behavior, but simultaneously an earnestness about it that more recent Batman films do not, right? Because earnestness is poison to Hollywood currently, especially if you're trying to be, like, dark and gritty.
0: I'm kind of I'm interested to see there's a new um, Lois and Clark TV show coming out starring uh, Derek from Teen Wolf as Superman um, a role that he played absolutely wonderfully on Supergirl a truly delightful piece of casting and I was like oh I'm really looking forward to this show and then they released the first trailer and it's all like dark and I'm like surely you're not going to make the show dark like what's the point (laughs) you can't make like (laughs) I mean he's living on like a fucking farm with his wife like you can't give me a dark farm wife show (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Come on. <laughs> also,
1: like, just let Tyler Hecklin like be charming. Well, but it's which That's... is
0: literally like. I mean, I, 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 it's so ridiculous that I kind of suspect that they just did the trailer like that, and the show itself would not be like that. But like, Tyler Hecklin yeah. literally is just playing like a sunbeam in the Superma- supergirl show. It's just delightful.
1: I mean, on the sort of topic of darkness, we should we should talk about the Joker a bit. Yes, obviously impossible to watch this movie right now without thinking about. Joker. You know, as someone who's not like steeped in Batman lore, but also has seen all these recent movies, it was just wild (laughs) to, to see this. Particularly because they actually do give an origin story for the Joker in this movie. They don't linger on it at all, but they kind of explain that he was one of the like mob toughs. In the like mafioso gang, whatever that the father of the love interest has got going on, Bruce finds a photo and looks at it and like draws a smiley face on one of the guys and is like, <laughs> Oh my god, it's him! <laughs> Which I think is how they kind of tie the character back into the plot to have like justification for him being. Yeah, because usually the movie.
0: in the animated series, the joker's just
1: like, He's just there. <laughs> it's not, you know, a deep backstory explanation. I think it's more logistical, but it makes sense enough and it doesn't weigh down the character too much in a way that the movie recent film obviously is like so burdensome. And then obviously the character himself as written and performed and drawn in this film is like literally could not be more different than what we were just subjected to. And there's almost not anything to say because it's so self explanatory, but like you just see so much about the ethos of what's going on in this project from that character versus the way he has been handled in the two recent iterations. I always forget the Jared Leto thing happened because <laughs>
0: why would I remember
1: that that happened? But Mark Hamill is so much fun in this, like truly so He's much fun. He's so much
0: fun, fun. and the character is actually quite scary.
1: I don't know. I didn't find him that I scary. Mean, I feel like if you were a kid, yeah. you would I mean, be I I
0: think it's like the, the design as well. Because it's like he has this really, he has really extreme facial features. Maybe he's not as scary in this, but like, I feel like, you know, he's got, like the, they just kind of give him far more exaggerated features than anyone else in the show. And he's so kind of volatile and weird that like he's scary in a completely kid-friendly way in a show where no one dies.
1: Yeah. Yes. Well, what I noticed about the way they wrote him was that, He'll do sort of individual acts that are violent or threatening or whatnot, but he, because of the way that the character is written and, like, the bit of him, like, he doesn't stay pissed off or angry or anything for more than five seconds at a time. Like, he's he's incapable of maintaining a thought yeah. that's not just, like, giddiness over whatever. Like, he's, a, a, you know, an agent of chaos, but the whole point is just that like, you, you can't have a serious conversation with him, because he's just, like, it's impossible. Which is part of what's fun about the character, is that he'll be interacting with various other people who are, like, trying to engage him on a subject, and it's, you you cannot do it, because he's just like, yeah, well, whatever. And that's really fun to watch, because it's executed well. Like, there, that could very easily go wrong, and you could just be like, this is so annoying, but it, it's it feels fun, it's funny, and can also be threatening, because obviously that, kind of energy can be sort of manic and bad versus the... imp. Like, I do not understand watching that and being like, we have to explain why this guy became like this. What's his traumatic past?
0: He's the ultimate example of a character that doesn't need to be explained. Like the whole point is the Joker is an agent of chaos, which is why like no matter how good the Joker movie was, which it wasn't, (laughs) then it just, it's just not necessary. It's just like every element of like the explanation they give in that movie like even if you are someone i think who thinks that film's really good as soon as you start thinking about it it's like oh he has like a disorder that means that he bursts out laughing all that that is completely ridiculous (laughs) we've talked about joker the
1: film obviously before (laughs) but it was like i i knew about this iteration of this character from pop culture but i hadn't ever seen it before because i hadn't watched the show um and it was pretty wild to actually witness
0: it and be like oh right that's what it's yeah. supposed to be it's just <laughs> fun <laughs> and like the t- because the TV show has so many episodes it's like obviously a lot of the time he's just being ridiculous but then they have like a couple of episodes they can put in to show why he's like a truly disturbing figure so it's like the kind of the most famous ones are like when they kind of introduced harley quinn and initially she was just this side character and she was so fun they kept her in they kind of used that to illustrate this kind of abusive relationship narrative in like once again in a very kid-friendly way but it was just really well done because he's just this incredibly volatile person who can really be fit into that trope in a kind of intelligent way but also i was kind of looking up the backstory behind the two main guys getting their roles because like this is like Kevin Conroy this is like his iconic role he has basically been playing Batman for 30 years at this point point. <laughs> and uh, Mark Hamill as well like although obviously he's much better known for Luke Skywalker because that's an on-screen role like the Joker is like his second most famous role and it's got this colossal fan following so I kind of looked up how they initially cast the show and apparently they had a hell of a time finding Batman they auditioned like 500 people and couldn't find anyone so they started kind of looking outside of professional voice actor circles they started looking at kind of stage actors and apparently at this point like Kevin Conroy was like a jobbing actor in Hollywood who had graduated from Juilliard but like hadn't really made it in a big way so he kind of auditioned for Batman but he was so kind of, <laughs> he was so classy. He basically just didn't know what Batman was. So like he was only familiar with the 1960s TV series. And as soon as I was reading this interview, I was just imagining Alan Rickman in Galaxy Quest, who's this incredibly serious actor who then gets like landed with this like children's show role. Um, so it's like he had explained to him that Batman has this dark story and has this double life. And he was like, oh, it's just like Hamlet. Uh, but I was happy to discover that Kevin Conroy is in fact just completely chill with playing Batman for 30 years and actually gets a bit annoyed when they cast someone else who just copies his voice because like he is Batman's voice now. So it's like if you hire someone who just sounds like Kevin Conroy, you can still just hire Kevin Conroy. (laughs) It's like (laughs) at least do like a different version of Batman. And with Mark Hamill, he's obviously spoken about this a lot and I just find it really charming because like Mark Hamill is a delightful and very interesting person because like he had this Huge breakout role in like the biggest franchise in the world. But he's not really typical leading man material, even either in terms of like his appearance or his personality. Like he's not like a hunk and he's also like pretty fucking weird. <laughs> he's just like this eccentric guy yes. who also has just been like married to a normal woman for his entire life, which is rare. <laughs> um so like at this juncture, it was like after like, after Star Wars, he was, like, on stage in a touring production of Amadeus playing Mozart for ages. And the one element of his performance, because obviously it's a script-driven performance that he was allowed to change every night, was he could do a different weird laugh. <laughs> so he had a he had a <laughs> wide array of weird laughs, which he could showcase as the Joker. And he was also, like, a huge Batman fan, because the rest of the voice actors in this show were voice actors. They were not nerds. But... The way that Mark Hamill found out about this show is he was reading some like, not like a comic book, but like a Comics Digest like business publication and found out that they were casting for Batman villains. And he was like, oh, I'd love to do like one of the more obscure ones. So he called up to play like some fucking weird ass, you know, like like someone like two tiers below the Riddler. And they were like, why don't you audition for the Joker? So, like, they got, like, this amazing Joker performance who is, like, just immediately exactly what you want because, like, everyone who was auditioning was just doing impressions of previous people who'd done the Joker, which is, once again, not what you want. And so they've got this incredibly idiosyncratic performance from Mark Hamill. And um, and he's just been doing it ever since because, like, he's now rooted into a whole generation of Batman's fans' psyches as well. And he really kind of understands the character and has no desire... To make it into like this dramatic figure, he just wants to cackle. <laughs> so,
1: <laughs> I mean, that is truly an inspiring tale. Would that we could all achieve our goals by reading a trade publication <laughs> and calling someone up. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but also it was, it's really funny to just read the, this interview with him because like he was basically like i didn't think that i would get the joker like he knew that he could get a voice acting role in batman but he was like i don't think they're gonna cast me as the joker because i'm luke skywalker and it's like a pr nightmare and i'm known for yeah. playing this little angel faced twink and all the batman fans are taking it way too seriously or to get angry because he was the only person working on the show who knew what fandom was like so he was like you're gonna get letters yeah. but it was fine because he was really good <laughs>
1: Well, also, he doesn't sound anything like... No, he's completely
0: unrecognizable. And it's just really funny to see him do the Joker voice in interviews and stuff, because you're like, oh, (laughs) okay.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that is just... That is delightful. We should talk before we finish about the romance. We should. I think. Yes. Which I found quite interesting. I thought they did a really good job with this element of the film, which normally I'm leery of. And frankly, most Hollywood movies do not handle romance well, but especially superhero movies. Uh, And I think that this character, Andrea, who is like the daughter of, I don't know if they ever actually specify what her father does, but he's like involved with the mob. And she and Bruce have this kind of like budding romance. And there are a number of flashback scenes where like, it becomes clear that this is her father's deal, but she seems to be kind of in denial about it, and then he's also kind of not dealing with it. But it's very clear as the the audience that, like, this is no good. <laughs> like, obviously, this woman's father is in bed with some bad people, which, you know, leads to problems, which we will get into when we get into spoilers, but... I just felt like they did a really good job of making her feel pretty distinct as a character while also being a, you know, sexy lady, which is not what I normally expect from films of this type.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think with the animated series, it's like they definitely don't have a lot of female characters, but like they're pretty well done. I also have to say that I quite enjoy A Vamp. Like, just just oh, yeah. like a straightforward vamp, you know, just like an old school vamp, which actually, like in the comics, like obviously there are Batman comics that are romances and in the more recent comics, they've had some relatively well done sort of Batman Catwoman love stories, but it's not really the same situation where he has like one true love, like Lois Lane. That's not the kind of character Batman is. And something I really enjoy about the kind of earlier Batman movies, like the 80s, 90s ones. Is that the women in that are just vamps. Like, at some point, I Morgan will watch like the corny ones from the 90s, and the role that Nicole Kidman gets in the sexy Batman. Because like Michelle Pfeiffer obviously is like a genuinely brilliant performance as Catwoman, But like Nicole Kidman has this role in the third Batman film where you look up vamp in the dictionary and it's just her because the way she acts is like no human on earth. She's like incredibly turned on to see this guy in like a rubber suit, like jumping off a building after speaking to him like once. But she does this whole voice, like she's does doing this husky voice and it's like, so Nicole Kidman just decided to like do a bit for like a whole feature film. And I really respect that because like the love interest they have in the Nolan movies is just this like nothing. <laughs> and she's just wearing like clothes. <laughs>
1: Uh, Yes, clothes. Um, I mean, you know, Nicole Kidman is my my favorite. So I do look forward to experiencing that. I mean, Anne Hathaway, I think is great.
0: Oh, I mean, I love Anne Hathaway. In fact, I wish she got to also wear like more absurd clothes because like they gave her this Catwoman costume that was like, kind of sexy, but also they're trying to make it practical. And it's like, you need to go one way or the other because the middle ground is not the place to be. (laughs)
1: <laughs> I mean, if they had gone really absurd with it, it would have felt. Oh, it would very have felt
0: weird. very. Because... It, 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 you can't have a sexy cat woman in those movies, because like they're not sexy no, movies. No. But like what they gave her was just like. Oof.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think the character in this is obviously a type. Like she is a vamp, as you say, and is playing on tropes yeah. from those but old. So War are movies. they all? It's a very simple short film. <laughs> yes, but it doesn't feel. It doesn't ever feel kind of weird or bad to me, and. There's a lot of interesting stuff going on with the motivations between the two of them that I think is really interesting, which gets us into spoiler territory. So we will be spoiling the end of the movie (laughs) now. (laughs) Uh, If you are listening to this still and haven't seen Batman Mask of the Phantasm, you've now been warned. So she winds up being the Phantasm, whom we really haven't talked about very much. Over the course of the episode. Yeah, I episode. mean, he
0: doesn't really get much of a chance to stretch his conceptual legs because he's a mysterious man in a cape, or as it turns out, a woman.
1: Yes. But uh, I didn't figure this out until right before it was revealed and then was like, oh, obviously. <laughs>
0: yeah, it's, like, it's one of those sort of like watching an episode of Law and Order. It's like, well, we eliminated all the other possibilities, so. <laughs> yes.
1: But uh, I also don't ever figure stuff out until it's like shoved in my face. In movies like this. That's not how my brain works. Like, I, I don't care. I'm not interested. But uh, I thought that there's a really interesting bit right at the end where, like, she's fighting with the Joker at, again, this, like, abandoned world trade, World world's fair ground. And um, she's fighting with a robot of a housewife that is just, like, mechanically cutting things that... Like the movie doesn't really deeply probe into like female roles in society and expectations and whatnot, but it does it just enough that that image really, really struck me because by this point, this woman is just in a like black spandex suit because she's been inside of this cape and she's like freaking out because the reason she's done this is to get vengeance on all the people who like ruined her life because of her father's involvement with the mob and it just felt really indelible to me The sort of idea of this female character having been tied to this man and then the image of her fighting with this like fake housewife <laughs> but obviously her emotional investment isn't in another male character so it's all this sort of like weird tangled thing but they do a good little bit about like decaying elements of vengeance which has like destroyed her soul basically and he's like it's bad and she's like you are literally Batman <laughs> like,
0: yeah I, I I, don't know what the exact like what the precise kind of conception for this character was originally but it feels like a pretty clear attempt to finally do kind of a female foil for Batman who like mirrors him because the thing about kind of superhero supervillain character design is that on the whole the big heroes all have antagonists that mirror their roles so like all of the spider-man antagonists are animals like all of the batman antagonists are in some way about like mental health or having a split personality that's like all of them and then you know all of the superman ones are usually like aliens or lex Luthor, who's kind of like the opposite of a farm boy so yeah obviously there are like a bunch of female villains in the batman mythos Catwoman, poison ivy harley quinn now Um, But like kind of there aren't any that are kind of intended as his direct opposite. Like and a lot of them, their backstories were kind of filled in after the fact. And with this one, it's like she's such an obvious mirror. You know, she's got her parental issues. She's out for revenge. She's got her double life with like a masked thingy. And it's a very simple concept. But it's like it's also one that hadn't really been done before in that way. And it was like a fun way to fold your antagonist into your love interest.
1: Yeah. And as you say, like it's all... Relatively straightforward, but I think it's effective. And because it was not something that they had done before or really since. I mean, I'm trying to think of like recent superhero movies. And by recent, I mean like
0: the 21st century. I mean, I've seen every superhero movie, basically. There aren't that many female villains. And usually when you have a female villain they're opposite another women. And like, they just like, you know, Hollywood being what it is, they like most villains aren't any good anyway. Like the way that the supervillains are portrayed in the vast majority of these films is quite frankly, shit. (laughs) And they're only somewhat dragged out of the pit by casting some amazing actor in that role.
1: (laughs) Yeah. I mean, Marvel, obviously, as everyone has said many times, is not good at that element of the storytelling. There are a couple movies where it works, but for the most part, it doesn't. And the couple times where it has worked, it's almost always men. I think Kate Blanchett's pretty good in Thor Ragnarok. Yeah. But she's not the most interesting. Obviously part of that Loki's movie. great is kind but... of not a villain villain. Yes. I mean Black Panther. Yes. Yeah, obviously. Is the best sort of traditional like foil structure that they've pulled off, I think. But what works about this movie is that they're sort of folding the femme fatal thing in with the superhero villain thing in a way that just really works. Like, it just makes a lot of sense. And the femme fatale trope, which is basically, like, a bad guy trope, right? They're just kind of adding to it with this sort of additional plot stuff of, like, oh, it's not just that she's gonna betray you. And she doesn't actually really... Like, she kind of betrays Batman, but that's not the main thing she's doing. She's more after other people. It's that it's not just about personal betrayal, it's that she's like running around town vanishing on a puff of smoke and murdering people, which is not what most of the femme fatales in the 40s moires were doing. So there's a sort of like genre crossover thing going on that I think is really cool. So uh, yeah, just a great use of inspirations from film history to enrich the thing
0: you are doing, which is also its own thing, I think. This movie's good, so thanks for asking us to review it on Patreon.
1: Yes, thanks to Madison. Um, this was truly so much fun to watch. It is on HBO Max now. I assume all of the animated Batman stuff is on there because it's the Warner Brothers catalog. So um, if you want to, you know, check out all of that stuff, that's where it is in America. And next week, we will be discussing James Cameron's Titanic. So exciting. Which we have watched. The commentary track either will be already up on Patreon by the time this episode comes out or it will be up shortly. And uh, I had never seen it before. So that was an experience to watch for the first time. Great movie. Shocking. Yeah. Shocking, yeah. you know, conclusion we that we good. came to. I mean, there, ha- there are some problems which we will discuss in our episode. <laughs> James Cameron's brain, A Strange Place, but basically a very good film. I'm really looking forward to talking about that one and doing a lot of research into the whole phenomenon because we were sort of just too young to really participate. We both remember it coming out and you saw it when you were. Yes, I saw it kid, when
0: I was too but, um, young to see it and enjoyed it at yes. the time, I'm sure.
1: <laughs> but like, I feel like there's a sort of cohort of film critics or film writers online who were like, Four or five years older than us, yeah. for whom that he was saw It, like at, like, it was movie. like the
0: formative, because for us, yeah. the formative movie was Lord of the Rings, and for them, it yes. was Titanic. So, yeah, like I'm also always interested in a thing that gets people,
1: you know, that like hits people right exactly the right age to make them fanatics about something. So, we will be discussing the greatest all of love that. story
0: ever told, a film with a genuinely fantastic romance, some mind-boggling costumes and hair choices. A significant amount of submarine-based content, which James Cameron put in because he cannot resist a submarine. And then a full feature-length drowning sequence, just an hour and a half of people drowning. <laughs> it's an hour and a half of people falling in <laughs> love and then an hour and a half of drowning.
1: <laughs> yes, it's, it's an amazing combination of those two things. The framing device, which we will talk about next week. It's just the most amazing self-insert I've ever seen in a movie, I think. Yeah,
0: I mean, I fully, even though I knew it was in there, I was like astounded by how much submarine there was. And like watching it as an adult, it's like, wow, this is not necessary. I remember the film starting when Leonardo DiCaprio shows up. Like once, once, once he's there, that's when the film starts.
1: <laughs> and there's a half an hour before yeah. that. So, but yeah just a little preview of our sure to be lengthy titanic episode <laughs> next week <laughs> tell your friends and that and that will be 200 that will be our 200th episode yeah we which wanted to
0: do a special one crazy. for you guys
1: yeah um so if you want to listen to that commentary track you can find that at patreon.com slash gavia podcast
0: where can our listeners find you and your work online you can find me on Twitter at hello underscore Taylor, and you can find me on YouTube at behind the scenes, where I have an episode all about the history of the bat suit, and it's a good one.
1: And you can find me on Twitter and Letterboxd at ML Davies. The podcast is on Twitter at OverinvestedPod. Our Tumblr is OverinvestedPodcast, and our website is overinvestedpodcast.com. Thanks. Bye. <laughs>